This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, salam emiladi. Thank yeah. you so much for being on the show. Yeah, my um, pleasure. For those who are tuning in and you're like, who is Emilani? <laughs> I met Emilani in my Pasi 101 class and she's my lecturer. She's amazing. So passionate. <laughs> like literally after the first couple of classes, I was like, I just need to have you on the show. Mm. So welcome. I'm really like happy that today is happening. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Um, and also it's the Maori New Year. So happy New Year. Oh, <laughs> it seems it like is. a cool day to do, a, oh, wow. to do a recording and a podcast. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I literally was thinking, wow, uh, I feel the energy of renewal so they're actually mm-hmm. wow that's actually really yeah. cool <laughs> rose this morning and it's just yeah it feels like a good a good time oh yeah. wow oh that's so cool happy mm-hmm. new year happy new year um i start this question i start off the show with this question for every episode mm-hmm. and it is when was the last time that you had a really good yarn because they're all about yarns yes. on the show yes um that left you with food for thought and mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be related to anything mm-hmm. about race or like the co-pop of the show just Yes. Honestly, anything. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I'm I'm quite fortunate in that I'm surrounded by amazing people who I always have cool conversations with, and and they're people who you can talk about really deep stuff with or really shallow stuff with. And the conversation is always really good. The chat's always really good. Um, I call home to my mom every day. <laughs> um, nice. uh, you know, she's my mom, but she's also just genuinely one of my best friends. And so we, we have really long chats every day and people are always like, what do you actually talk about? And I'm like everything. <laughs> so, you know, I think last night I had an amazing yarn with her. Um, but I think if I think back to like a conversation that's left me with a lot to think about, um, at the end of May, I went on a writing retreat with a group of people who um, I organ- or helped to organize a conference with last year. Um, so it was a social movements, resistance and social change conference called Activating Collectivity, Aroha and Power. Um, and I bring that up because it was the first time in a long time that I had a whole weekend away with people I genuinely love and admire and respect. And we just had amazing kōrero. And I walked away from that really thinking about all kinds of things from solidarity to activism to um, how we relate to one another, how we talk to one another, how we work in joy and find the joy in our work. Um, and so the, the, the kōrero that we had that weekend have stuck with me and they're, they're things that I continually return to. So I'd say that's the, the last sort of really big, deep um kind of perspective shifting conversation that I've had um, that's stuck with me since. I mean, I've had many conversations since that have been powerful, but yeah, that one's really sat with me in in really productive ways. Oh, wow. That sounds like soul food. Yeah, no, literally nourishing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was awesome. What do do you think, because you guys knew each other beforehand or it was just the fact that you just met each other with this openness and you had these kind of um, conversations I think because or? we knew each other beforehand mm. so many of us on the on the organizing crew hadn't had prior relationships before we started or we knew each other before we started organizing the conference um, some of them I just knew 
sort of, um, I didn't know very deeply, but I knew of them and we had chatted before. Um, and then when you come together to plan a conference and you're working together, every, you're meeting every single week for a number of hours each week um, over the span of some of us over a year, um, you really get to know people. And I think when we met as an organizing crew, we were very intentional about how we met. And so every meeting, even when we, um, even when we were in lockdown, we started off by checking in with each other. How are you? And not just like, how are you in terms of your work and how are you in terms of the conference, but how are you? How are you? How's your family? How's your life? Um, and we gave everybody space and time to vent if they needed to, to say things like, I'm here, but I'm also struggling. So if I'm quiet today, that's why. Um, and we were so, yeah, intentional about that. And I think it allowed us to to nurture and cultivate our own healthy relationships with each other, but then to also take that same energy into the conference that we held last year. Um, so when we got back together this year for our writing retreat, where we were, we were reflecting on the conference and reflecting on the process of creating the conference, it was like just clicking right back in. Um, mm. And again, yeah, with people who I just... Yeah, genuinely love and respect. And and I find that you can't say that very often in terms of your work experiences, that these are people I actually want to hang out with. Like the mahi that we did last year is actually done. The conference is done, but we still find reasons to, to work together. Um, and I left that that writing retreat really thinking about how beautiful it would be if every work experience was like that. Mm. If you could find people who you would were working with but it didn't feel like work. Even when even when it's heavy and even when it's hard, because you're with people who you always feel supported by, nurtured by, um, and inspired by. So mm. yeah. Oh that's so cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. The reason why I asked mm-hmm. is that like I do get a lot of questions where people ask me, I wanna have these cool conversations yeah. with my family and like with my friends, yeah. people that I spend mm. a lot of time with. Mm-hmm. So like hearing what you've said, I'm taking what I'm taking from that is being intentional yeah. and checking in with each other and yeah. the value of your mm-hmm. relationship mm-hmm. to begin with before yeah. you even have those conversations. Right. right. Yeah. So that's really cool. So important. Um, the conference we created last year was all about social movements. Um, it's about activism. It's about solidarity. We knew that there were going to be conversations, really heavy conversations about positionality, about race, um, about culture, etc. And so we said we need to make sure people know not just that they're coming together, but how, how to come together. And so we had a list of values that we created. Um, and Aroha was always at the forefront. And so, yeah, we, we knew that if we were going to cr- try to create this space, we had to practice what we were trying to create in our own space. And so, yeah, that intentionality about how we come together is so important. Yeah, It makes I such a huge difference, mm-hmm. doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. it just completely reframes the conversation yeah. or, yeah. you know, the uncomfortable mm-hmm. topic that you're going right. to dive Right, into. I mean, it makes me think about my, you know, some of my students say things like, oh, I'm learning these things in class. And I want to have these conversations with my family, but they're not ready. And I'm like, well, how do you know that? You know, and have you tried to go to your family and just say, hey, did, let's talk about this. And then did you just bombard them? Did you throw this heavy stuff at them? Or did you check in with them first, see how they are, meet them where they are? Um, and don't place hierarchies on where we are in our own journeys of understanding and learning. You know, you we have a privilege. We have the privilege to come to university and really engage in these heavy, critical conversations, and not everybody else does. So meet people where they are, check in with them first, see them as people with their own experiences and their own knowledge and their own um, 
wisdom to bring and then engage with them there. And I think, yeah, I think the organizing the conference really helped me to even reflect back on my own teaching and, and the conversations that I have with students and my family. So, yeah. I definitely identify with like learning things and Pasi and just even my other classes mm. as well and then like wanting to go mm. back to my family and friends mm. and have a conversation about it. Yeah. Um, it definitely is a privilege like having yeah. these conversations in an academic yeah, setting. It is. Um, but I love how, you know, you set aside the academics and you just get back to the basics and it yep. is just about that respect and that mm-hmm. aroha for mm-hmm. each other. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for highlighting that. <laughs> no worries, um, thank you. Tell me a little bit more about who you are mm. and about, you know, where home is for you. Yeah. Who are the people that make your home? Cool. Oh, that's a good, such a good <laughs> question. Home for me is Waimea. Um, it's a town on the island of Hawaii. So I'm from Hawaii. Um, and the island I come from is the biggest island in the archipelago, and it's it's called Hawaii. So people are often a bit confused when they say that's where I come from. They're like, which island? And I'm like, Hawaii, that island. That's the name of the island. And now the, you know, the quote-unquote state has taken its name from that island. Um, but that's home for me. Um, and Waimea is a lovely beautiful ranching town um, which people don't often associate with Hawaii Um, it's a huge cattle ranching town um, and so it's still a bit rural Um, it's kind of being developed and it's been growing in the past so many years past couple of decades um, which is a little bit heartbreaking to see kind of what was a very tight-knit small community growing into this bigger this bigger community but that's where I feel most at home and most comfortable in the world and I feel like I am most I am myself it sounds strange because I'm myself wherever I am in the world but I guess I kind of sink into the soils there the most um, and really feel the most grounded when I'm there in Waimea Um, I grew up with a pretty big family well I guess in today's terms pretty big family I'm one of six kids um, number five and all of my siblings literally live in houses around my parents' house. Oh my <laughs> so. god, that is honestly my dream because I come from a big family. Oh, too. One yeah. of eight. Oh, okay. One of the eight. Nice. Like, oh, you're the oldest. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, that's like literally our dream when we all grow mm. older, just like live so on the be. same street yeah. and just have it the Abdullahi Street. Yeah. Oh, that would be <laughs> awesome. I call our space the, the case compound. Um, oh, and so that. when my parents. <laughs> parents were when my parents got married and when they started having children they knew that they wanted all of us to be really close and so um, my dad was really fortunate to inherit a piece of land from his mom um, and he inherited her house as well or the house that my grandmother and grandfather had um, and so while we were growing up they you know took out loans and and put themselves in a little bit of debt to build houses um, so all of my siblings, my youngest sister lives with my parents and the rest of the houses are filled by my siblings. And so whenever I do go home, um, it's not just going home to a single house. It's going home to this, this collective of houses and the nieces and nephews are all there. And they know that although they live in one house, sort of all the houses are theirs and they run in between. And yeah, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Um, so that's what I was raised in, and so it's it's a bit odd to be the only one who's ever moved away mm. from the compound, <laughs> um, and to not only move away to another island or another town, but another country. Um, so yeah, we're quite a tight, very close family, um, which makes being here 
hard sometimes, mm-hmm. but you know, it's the choice I made and I recognize the blessings in being here as well. But, um, yeah. Anyway. Wow. That's, that's a little so bit of home. <laughs> yeah. So special. Um, so what is the significance of land? Like to you, mm. we're talking about. Oh, it's everything. Today? It's everything. Um, in Hawaiian, the word for land is aina and ai actually means to eat. And na is a suffix, um, and when added on to ai, it means that which feeds. So land is that which feeds you. It nourishes you, it sustains you, not just physically, but culturally, spiritually, emotionally. Um, And actually, because aina is that which feeds, it's not just the physical ground. Um, Mm. It can be the ocean, it can be the air, it can be the sky. Um, But aina, in terms of identity, is everything. Um, It's what we relate back to, it's what we connect to. Um, you know, earlier when I was talking about intentionality and relationships, our first and, and some of our primary relationships should be with Aina, should be with place. Um, and that's how I was raised to really acknowledge where we are, where we come from, acknowledge the stories in the land, acknowledge the land as ancestor. Um, so that's how I know myself as a Hawaiian woman in the world is always in relation and it's in relation to Aina first. Um, so yeah, it's, it's everything. I could go on and on, but I'll, I might just leave it there. It's just, it's critical. Yeah. I think it's, it's really nice to hear that because I think there's a lot of conversations happening in Aotearoa right now around mm-hmm. giving Māori land back. Yep. And I think people still need to kind of understand what is the significance yeah. of that. Like, yeah. why is it so important yep. to have land back? Yeah. So hearing your perspective mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. what land mm-hmm. means to you. I yeah. Think, really really important to you right now and I think it helps me to to sort of at least attempt to navigate my space and my role here as somebody who's not from here um you know my my connections to Aina are strongest at home in Hawaii and so when I come here I always think about that how do I live here and work here but not get in the way of land and whenua being returned to Maori you know how can I be an ally how can I support um, how can I stand in solidarity while also navigating this complex reality that I'm here working at a university that has benefited from and that is in existence because of the dispossession of Maori. Um, so yeah, it's complex, but I, I think knowing how I feel about Aina and my own relationships with Aina has helped me to come here and, and say, you know, there are people here who have those similar kind of relationships with place. Um, Therefore, what's my responsibility to them to help them nurture and maintain those relationships, knowing how critical they are? Mm. Yeah. Just talking about you as Pacific women, talking about mm. being an ally to Tangata Whenua. Mm-hmm. I've just finished reading um, Damon Celeste's book. Oh, my mind has gone blank. I forgot what the it was little called. One? The Little Island one. Island yes, yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> and he was just kind of highlighting the very complex relationship mm. with Pacifica people mm-hmm. and Māori people mm-hmm. because, you know, kind of featured in the same stats and stereotypes, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But Pacific people are the visitors to this land mm-hmm. as well. But mm-hmm. like there's a, there yeah. is a very complex yeah. relationship. It is. There. It is quite complicated. And and like I often talk about in Pussy 101, I you know there's a world of difference between seeing this place as the New Zealand nation and seeing this place as Aotearoa, especially for, for those of us who are Pacific. Are we going to view this land first and foremost as being the land of our Pacific relatives? 
who we are connected to by Whakapapa, or are we going to see this place first as the New Zealand nation and the New Zealand government that actually came out into the Pacific and colonized some of our islands? If our relationship is first and foremost with the New Zealand nation, then we're going to treat, um, we're going to understand ourselves here very differently than if our relationship is first and foremost with Aotearoa, the Fenua of Tangata Fenua. Um, and I think as a Pacific person, my responsibility is to first see this as an indigenous space. Um, it's not Maori who went out and colonized our islands, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we have an obligation to recognize that this is the land of an indigenous people first. Then we look at our relationships with the New Zealand nation, as complicated as all of them are. Um, but I think that's, as Pacific people, we need to navigate Papa first. That's the connection that has to be for, foregrounded. Um, because that's going to teach us about how to relate to the people whose lands we're coming to. Um, that's just me anyway. That's that's how I see it. But we've seen similar um, issues in Hawaii with heaps of people migrating from, you know, the, the sub-region of Micronesia to Hawaii. And if, if people move to Hawaii and just see it as the United States, that's going to dictate how they relate to the place versus if they see it as being Hawaii the land of people they are related to by genealogy as fellow Pacific people. So, yeah, it's just, it depends on what relationship you, you want to foreground. That's mm. going to impact the way that you relate to people, place, history, future. Um, so, yeah, as Pacific peoples related to one another, I think we have that responsibility to always see it first and foremost, again, as Pacific places with people who are indigenous to those places and then figure out how we relate after that or through that yeah. I, I love how you gently put your opinion in there but you still give people <laughs> the agency to figure out actually where they lie in, yeah I try, I, try. I mean I, I've, I think coming to Aotearoa um, first as a PhD student but then moving back as a lecturer or to be to be a lecturer um, has really pushed me to explore my positionality in ways that I would never have had to explore at home. At home, I am the indigenous person, you know, and so it's not that I wasn't critically aware of my position at home in Hawaii, but you're challenged in a whole new ways here. And so, and I also recognize the privilege that I have to think about these things. I write about them in the articles that I publish, in the book that I publish. I write about positionality, and that's a privilege to have the time and the space to actually think through that. Um, And so not everybody does. And so when I talk about relationships, when I talk about Pacific obligations to Tangata Whenua, when I talk about solidarity, I realize that it's because I've had a lot of time to think through it. Not that everything I, you know, I don't, I don't try to say that what I'm, what I propose or what I think is correct. It's just what I've, what I'm thinking through at the moment. It may change in the future. It may not. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that through sharing my own journey, I invite people to to travel along their own, whether they reach the same destination or not. Um, but I, I also think that sometimes in sharing our own opinions and opinions like this, that it isn't, it actually isn't about me at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's about our relationships to one another. And if I just happen to be one of the people who's saying these things, um, so that we can help to nurture our relationships and mend some of the ruptures and the disconnects in the Pacific, then, then that's okay. Then I'll say them. But sorry, I've gone off on a tangent, no, no, I think. I, that. I, think, I think it's really important because you've, I think people get really scared kind of entering the space because yeah. there's a lot of opinions mm-hmm. and it's kind of like mm-hmm. you don't have permission to explore. Yeah. Or it, yeah. there's this fear of mm-hmm. saying the wrong mm-hmm. thing or 
or just yeah a lot yeah. of guilt and I think mm-hmm. like by sharing yeah. your journey you've mm. kind of um, highlighted that it is really important to just ask questions yeah and yeah just to and to ask questions of ourselves and 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 I also recognize that being a Hawaiian living here in Aotearoa, that I, I kind of occupy this very strange liminal space mm. in that, you know, as I talk about in classes, in some of our Pussy classes, I'm not part of the dominant populations of Pacific peoples here. So there are Pacific people who don't even see me as being a fellow Pacific person. They just see me as being American um, because of the very strong, you know, ties between the United States and Hawaii. Um, and because we're in the Northern Pacific and because there aren't, a, there aren't many Hawaiians here. Um, and so because of that, being you know, a relatively new migrant, um, having this accent, not being part of the dominant Pacific populations, I'm in this kind of weird in-between space. And I've noticed in the past you know, few years that sometimes that actually gives me the space to say things that perhaps other Pacific peoples here who belong to these huge communities aren't actually able to say or don't feel comfortable saying yet. Um, so I've used that position sometimes when, when people have actually asked me and said, hey, would you say this? Because I think you can get away with it or you can say it, you know, that's it, sort of what people are asking. And sometimes I say, OK, I'll do it because not necessarily that I can or that I'm the best person. But if it helps other people who might be put in a compromised position saying something, um, then I'll do it. Yeah. Wow. What about yeah. the times that you say no? Um, I think the times that I've said no, it's been more about, um, if I felt like it was really inappropriate, like mm-hmm. I don't ever speak for other people's cultures. Like if it, if, if anyone ever asked me to say like, oh, I, you know, we're talking about someone, something, something here, but I, you know, I can't find anyone. Can you come in and speak? Then I'll, I'll definitely say no. I get asked a lot to talk about indigenous knowledge and indigenous rights and indigenous ways of knowing. Um, and I always have to clarify. I say, if we're here in Aotearoa, if you want indigenous knowledge from this place, I am not your person. Because indigenous people are not interchangeable. I'm not Tagata Fenua. I can talk about indigeneity very broadly, if that's what you're looking for. Um, so sometimes, yeah, it, if, I, if I can get a sense that they're asking me to say something because they need something to be said and it's about a broader Pacific experience or if they're asking me to speak about Hawaii specifically then yes I'll do that but if I ever feel like I'm being invited because they want me to fill in because it's easier to ask me than it is to ask somebody else then I say no um as I feel like that's ultimately disrespectful to the people who should be asked um Mm. like I get asked to talk about just the just things that have nothing to that I have no place speaking to or that I have no expertise in things like hey could you come in and talk to my indigenous you know talk about indigenous design and I'm like I'm not a designer you know things like that but they they see indigenous and they they say okay we need to check a box here let's invite her in she could probably speak um and I think people who do who have um who put out these kinds of invitations one (laughs) Are being and they might not realize it, but it's quite disrespectful to the people who are doing the work in that in those spaces, who are indigenous, who are designers, and I'm just using design as, as an example. But it also means that they don't know anything about my work, and they're not actually asking me to speak about what I do do, you know. Um, and they're not actually even considering the amount of time and research that it would take for me to even feel comfortable speaking on something you know, speaking about a a topic that I have, that is not mine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, it's, 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 
interesting navigating, you know, different invitations, but I always try to sit with each one and say, okay, what, what's the benefit of my being there? And there are, there are times where my being there is not a benefit, um, to me or to the audience. And so I just have to say, nope. And, and actually protect myself in the process. Um, yeah. Absolutely. I think tokenism is very real. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. The sense of, yeah. oh, you guys are all basically the same yeah. people. And it's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No. And because I <laughs> teach in Pacific case. studies, I often get the, um, hey, can you come in and give the Pacific perspective? And I'm like, do you know how diverse the Pacific is? <laughs> I can come and bring in a Hawaiian perspective. I can bring in my perspective. If you want me to talk about, you know, very specific things, I can do that. But oftentimes when people say, hey, can you come and give the Pacific perspective on X, Y, and Z, um, that's usually a flag for me that that's perhaps not an interview or a, or a talk that I want to do. Yeah. Do you take the time out when you say no to educate sometimes to be like, hey, this is the reason? Or is it just... Sometimes. Sometimes. Um, it, it depends. There are days where I'm just... Um, tired if I'm being really honest and I don't have the time to educate uh but but more often than not I'll just say and I might not go at you know I might not speak about it at length but I might just say something like you know indigenous people I actually remember writing an email once where I just said hey indigenous people are not interchangeable and I can't come in to speak for Maori and be and replace Maori and that's that yeah and then I remember once just kind of saying, hey, and I'm, this also is not my research area and would take me far too long to try to learn something in enough time to, or, or you know, learn something so that I could feel comfortable speaking. Um, please be respectful of the people who are working in that area and go and look for them. In other words, do the mahi, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but the labor always gets put back on us to do the mahi for, for them, and that's incredibly frustrating for me. So... Sometimes if I can sense that their intentions were good and they, they maybe genuinely didn't know any better, then I might engage and, and try to say a little bit more. And sometimes a flat no is enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, fair enough. Yeah. Just, yeah, the automatic assumption that, like, you know, people of marginalized communities will do the work. Yeah. Yeah. It's tiring. Yeah. It's really it is. tiring. It is. There are other ways to get educated. Yeah. Yep. Um, going back to the word indigenous, mm-hmm. as someone who identifies as an indigenous mm-hmm. person and has researched it yep. a lot, what does that word mean to you? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It means so many things. <laughs> um, I think at the most um, intimate and personal level, it means connection. It means coming from and being connected to the land. Um, you know, indigeneity, true indigeneity is about coming from place. That's what the word means. Um, on a more political level, though, indigenous has become a term um, used to refer to people who have similar experiences of colonialism. Um, so people who often call themselves indigenous, you can you can see similarities or in, in similarities in struggle. Um, so it, it does carry these negative connotations. Um, you know, the UN's done some work. They they um, commissioned a study that was done, you know, a few decades ago. And and a man named Martinez Cobo came up with a working definition of indigenous peoples. And it includes things like being marginalized, um, you know, and being a minority in your own homeland. It, it includes these really negative things. So not everybody who 
we might think of as being indigenous because they're the first peoples of a place actually want to be called indigenous and that's the case for many peoples in the pacific mm. um, there are people in the pacific who we might look at them and go well you're the people of that place you're indigenous um, but they're going nope no, no, no. We are the mon- my, we're the majority in our homeland. We haven't been colonized like you've been colonized. Don't call us indigenous. And so it's a really complex term. So I use it to refer to myself because one, I I view it as being important to identify first firstness, first peoples in a place. Um, many first pe- peoples, and you can see it in the Pacific, have have narratives of coming from place, you know, being born from the land, being created from the land, even while we also have narratives of migration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I embrace indigeneity and the term indigenous on that level, but I also do embrace it and use it strategically to speak to the experiences and the legacies and the realities of colonialism in Hawaii. It's what allows me to come, to come here and recognize some of the similarities and go, I see you and I see your struggle. They're not exactly the same, but I felt that pain as well. I still carry that pain, mm. you know? Um, and so I think in the term indigenous allows for um, and creates space for solidarities. And so I find it to be a, quite a powerful word, um, but not everybody does. And that was a lesson I had to learn in coming here yeah. um, because I use the term quite freely. I grew up using it. Um, I always called myself either a native Hawaiian, which is, a common term at home or I used the term indigenous once I learned that term a little bit later um, and I used it quite freely when I came here and then I started to talk to other Pacific peoples who were like Mm-mm, we don't use that term and then I had to really unpack why they don't and what it means then to just assume that somebody might use it you might be implying that they are one not the mind you know not the majority that they don't have their language that they've struggled in the same ways um, and that wasn't fair to those people so I realized that I was homogenizing the Pacific even while I was attempting to embrace its diversity. Um, and so I recognize that I use it, that some communities in the Pacific do use it, that some people use it, and that some don't. It's really an individual choice, but I find, personally, I find power in it. Um, and that's why I use it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's an identity of connection um, to place, but also an identity of, um, that comes with struggle. But that also comes with hope and resistance and these legacies of, um, of protest and indigenous persistence, you know. And, and so there's a lot of beauty in being indigenous as well. It's not just the, the kind of heavy stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a term I've just been, I don't want to say fascinated with, but I feel kind of obligated to explore. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's been a huge part of my research and work over the past Yes, so many years. It is a really big word, actually. It is, I yeah. I yeah. didn't really understand it. I mm-hmm. heard it a lot when I was growing mm-hmm, up, mm-hmm. but I actually didn't really understand it yeah. until maybe like, late teens, mm-hmm. and early mm-hmm. 20s. Yeah. Like, I just really didn't understand mm-hmm. um, that word. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I remember getting, um, not confused about in class, but it just left me wondering, the term indigenous, yeah. was it ever used before colonization? Like, did the word only yeah. come about because of colonization and people had to mm-hmm. say, hey, mm-hmm. we were the first peoples yeah. of yeah. this land? I think it would have been used in more of a scientific context, you know, in terms of plants and animals that are indigenous to place. But I think it was it was very much politicized 
um, when I, I know the term itself really kind of started to grow in popularity around the 70s, you know, when you started to see these different social movements happening around the world. Um, you know, you had the civil rights movement happening in the, in the States and that led into the Native American movement or the Native American Indian movement. Um, you had different Renaissance movements. You had decolonization movements happening and you saw um, a recognition of, again, shared experiences of, of struggle um, and, and you saw recognition of indigeneity. And so I think that's when the term really started to grow in popularity. Um, before that, though, prior to colonization, there would have been no need for us to identify ourselves as being anything different because we were all the same. Um, so even terms like Maori and terms like Hawaiian, you know, don't really come in until you've got to until you've got to explain the difference um, in Hawaii. Um, the term for Hawaiian is, because Hawaiian is not a Hawaiian word, but the term for Hawaiian is kanaka Maoli, and it just means, Maoli just means sort of like real, and kanaka just means person. And actually, before colonization, we would, just, would have just called everyone kanaka. You're just a person. Mm. Um, like tangata here, you know, you, there was no need to, to make those, to have categories or to, to um, differentiate because it was just us. Um, yeah, so you can see um, post-colonization or, you know, after after um, Western contact in different places, then you can see this emerging, like here, an, an emerging Maori consciousness and at home an emerging Kanaka or emerging Hawaiian consciousness, this this realization of difference um, and, and the fact that that difference then led to you being oppressed or led to you being treated in a particular way. Um, and so then these terms and these ways of, of identifying ourselves then become really important. And so indigenous, um, I think is a later term. We had our own terms in our own languages, but, um, but it's a term that's grown, I think, for that reason to again, differentiate and say, hey, firstness matters in these places, especially where in, especially in settler colonial context, settler colonialism, the goal of it is to come in and wipe the people out to erase and replace. And so in those contexts, like Aotearoa, like Hawaii, um, recognizing indigeneity is so important. So these terms become so important and carry a lot of power. Mm. Yeah. Wow, thank you so much for unpacking <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, no worries. So how does being indigenous as part of your identity mm. translate to your activism? Because I know yeah. that there's a lot of stuff happening in Hawaii right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And like before I took Pasi 101, I just... I honestly didn't really think about it a lot. I just yeah. thort of America when I thought yep. of to be yeah. very honest. I just thought of America yeah. and Barack Obama because mm. I know that he grew up there. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I thought yeah. about it. But you mm. know, there's a lot of you know, indigenous mm. people uh, being trampled on. Mm-hmm. So how does that um your idea your identity of being indigenous yeah. and there's so much more yeah. of you, I just want to acknowledge it. there's so much more to yeah. you as well. No, than thanks. Just being indigenous, but mm. how does that translate into your activism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before I before I go into that, I just wanna note that, you know, people's perceptions of Hawaii, that that's commonly what I encounter here is that it's you say Hawaii and people are like, Oh, it's beautiful and people think of it as Either being this idea, this you know beautiful paradise, as being American, as being where you know Barack grew up, and and on all of that is strategic. 
all of that is constructed. Hawaii is constructed very intentionally in a particular way so that no one, so that people don't have to pay attention to the fact that Hawaii is heavily militarized, the fact that our land was stolen, the fact that we were taken over illegally and are still under prolonged military occupation, which the United States has recognized uh, but done nothing about. Um, and the fact that Hawaiians are, you know, the most undereducated, they are the, mo- the ha- most, ha- you know, they have high, the highest incarceration rate the the poorest health um, health outcomes you know like we're, we're just we're, it's really hard to live in Hawaii um, but as long as you can construct this beautiful narrative around Hawaii then nobody has to pay attention or at least the outside world doesn't really have to pay attention to all of the yucky stuff um, but in terms of indigeneity and how that influences and um, I guess motivates my activism. Very at a really young age, I was able to watch my parents engage in what I know now to be activism, but that back then just seemed normal, um, everyday fights for our rights as people. Um, I remember growing up, my dad is a hunter, um, he hunts wild boar, um, has been doing so my whole life. Um, and there were very many times as a, you know, as a family of six children, that that's how he fed us. You know, times were sometimes rough, lots of children to feed. He was always a provider, always going out hunting, fishing. And I remember watching him as a little girl um, go to community meeting, meetings, sometimes go to the legislature to give speeches, to talk about how important it was that we as people could maintain access to our bush areas, to our forests, to our oceans. Um, And he fought because living in Hawaii, access is cut off all the time for new development projects, for new hotels, for new golf courses. We're constantly being told, you can no longer go here. You can no longer gather from this place. Um, And so, you know, you grow up realizing that literally what the government is trying to do is cut you off from, from aina, from everything that feeds you, literally. Um, And I watched him get you know, just broken down, like he would break down in some instances, you know, and and I watched him fight my entire life. So that showed me that that that's the reality of being indigenous, that it is hard, but it's a responsibility because what's the option? If you don't fight and if you lose access to everything that feeds you, then you lose the opportunity, you potentially lose the opportunity to feed your children literally. Um, and culturally and emotionally and spiritually my mom was an activist and still is in her own right she wasn't she wasn't she always supported my dad kind of you know in helping him in his efforts Um, but she also while I was growing up was part of a group that advocated for the building of the first Hawaiian language immersion school in my town so there were other Hawaiian language immersion preschools in in the other or on the um, in other part on other parts of the of my island and in other parts of the other islands, um, but we didn't have one in my town. And and this is a woman who didn't grow up speaking Hawaiian, who tried to learn it, you know, as an adult and still struggles. But she saw the value in it. And then she became the director of the first preschool and and worked there for years. And so I saw my parents work constantly. Um, again, because that's the reality of being indigenous in a settler colonial context where our language, our identity, our food, um, our right to be who we are on our own aina, our, on our own, own land is constantly threatened. Um, and they worked tirelessly and they still do. And, and they struggled 
Um, it affected them. It affected the family sometimes, but they still did it. Um, so my activism comes from that. Comes from having those models and recognizing the need that recognizing the need to pick up that fight because they've been doing it my whole life, and I have to do it now as well. The goal would be that my children or grandchildren are not fighting the exact same fights. You know that we've helped to secure at least you know slightly better futures for them. Um, but again, thinking about indigeneity as being not just this colonial struggle or this colonial reality, but also as coming from and being related to the land, my obligation is first and foremost to protecting Finwa, to protecting Aina, and which sounds strange because I'm not at home to be actively engaged in those struggles every single day. Um, so that's been another lesson for me in living here, especially during COVID and being very physically grounded. Right, we can't go anywhere. What does that then mean for how I protect place? What are the things that I can do because I'm not at home? Um, I had to change the question because I remember some at one point last year thinking, "Oh, I could do this, 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 and this, and this if I was at home." And then I had to say, "No, but you're not at home." And actually, mm-hmm. everyone else is physically grounded in their houses as well. So, what can you do because you're not there? Um, and so that was really transformational for me in terms of thinking about my own activism not just to Hawaii alone but to the region um so yeah I think I've answered your question again oh my yeah gosh, really? a lot to from you. <laughs> yeah so from being physically so far from home yes. what does your activism look like now mm. like is social media or technology become more important to the cause for you yeah you know it has in social media but social media is so tricky um i found last year i did a a lot of work with a group at home um and actually there was another group here as well and we were against um we've got a few posters up there rimpac uh rimpac is the rim of the pacific international war games that take place in hawaii every other year um and so Activism. They started in the 70s. The RIMPAC started in the 70s, and there's been resistance to it since the beginning. Um, but basically, the United the United States Navy um, hosts these war games. They bring together different nations. Contingents come from different nations, and they just play war in our la- on our lands and in our waters. And in 2020, during COVID, um, we tried to actually use COVID strategically to say now's not the time. I mean, it's never the time. But during a global pandemic, to bring people to Hawaii when all of our borders should be closed, when we shouldn't be traveling, is it's ridiculous. Like it, it already poses a threat to the people in Hawaii every other year. But during a global pandemic, that's just yeah, it just should not happen. Anyway, I, I share all of that because I couldn't go home of course. So I was here and I had to think about how my activism had to shift. And so I did do a bit on social media. Um, But also I found that I worked with a group here in Aotearoa and we advocate or we really, really tried to get the New Zealand government to pull their participation in RIMPAC 2020. Um, So it was a lot of writing to politicians, a lot of behind the scenes work. Um, but I also did, I wrote some, um, op-eds and got a few things published online. I think I had one piece in this, one piece in the spinoff, did some interviews. Um, and so I really had to think about how, again, because I'm here in Aotearoa, what can I do? I couldn't I actually engaged in a lot of work with the, with the group back home, back home in Hawaii. And we use social media to really push our message, but I found working here with the group in Aotearoa was really, um, really quite 
revealing for me and that it showed me that even though the issue seems to be isolated to Hawaii, it isn't. It is a Pacific issue. It is an international issue. Um, we had to hold New Zealand accountable and say, hey, right now, especially while you're preaching about safety and, and borders and, um, and keeping you know, our, our families and our, and our whanau and our country safe and secure, why would you send a contingent to Hawaii? Why would you risk their health, you know? Um, and then, you know, being involved in that activism last year, I also started to really unpack some of the other connections. Indonesia didn't send a contingent in 2020, but they have sent contingents in the past. And so when I think about Indonesia sending military personnel to Hawaii to train in war strategies, in um, everything from uh, live fire training to bombings to... Um, amphibious trainings, like trainings coming out of, out of the water into the, onto land, um, counter-piracy, counter-insurgency, home invasion trainings. And then I think about those, those soldiers potentially going back to Indonesia and West Papua and using those tactics there. I really then started to reframe RIMPAC, and I realized RIMPAC is the training ground for militarism around the world, not just in the Pacific, not just in Hawaii, not just in the states around the world. Um, and so that changed my activism or the way that I look at my activism. It can't just be about these what we think are isolated issues. In fact, when we think of them as isolated issues, we actually are buying into the, the myth of our separateness. But we're not separate. And our issues are not separate. And I remember when I was very much engaged in um, activism against RIMPAC, um, that's when George Floyd was murdered. And that's when, you know, then we saw the, the escalate or the... the kind of re-emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, and it took my, I had to really think about how these seemingly separate issues are actually so tightly intertwined. RIMPAC, for instance, is all about militarism. It's about training people to be military. And when we can see the, the, the militarization of police in the States, here in Aotearoa as well, then you can see the connection Right, the connection between the Black Lives Matter movement, between police brutality, between you know, global racism, militarism. Um, so yeah, the, the activism last year, and I, I did go far away from your initial question, but we did use a lot of social media. Um, but I think the background work, the kind of stuff that you never really talk about or that never makes it to, to social media, was a lot of recognizing connections, finding connections, and then building on those connections, not just for me, but for other people. Because the only way I think, or one of the, the primary ways that you can bring people into movements is to show them how it impacts them, impacts them personally. Um, so once we were able to kind of reframe impact, not as a Hawaii issue way over there in paradise, but as an issue that has real impacts for us right now because New Zealand send their military there, and then we can see the Americanized, you know, the American-style militarization of police here, um, then people start to care a little bit more. Um, but yeah, uh, to get back to the initial question about social media, we did use social media, but I do find I still find social media so tricky. Especially when people start to expect you to say something um, all the time, even when you're not prepared to say it. And so I've actually found myself pulling back a bit from social media this year because I felt like I, should, I actually just had to do a lot more work on myself to learn. Um, and so I don't, po I don't post on every issue. I post, I post every now and then, but um, if, I feel like I, if I feel like my post is actually going to do anything, you know, but I, I sometimes feel like 
social media becomes this space where we can engage and then feel satisfied with ourselves because we've engaged, but we don't, we're not doing the work behind the scenes. My friends and I call it the unsexy work, the work that you don't get any actual recognition for. That's the stuff that matters. Not that the social media doesn't, but it's when you're engaging in that work and it's not for a like, and it's not for a heart on Instagram and it's not for any credit. Um, I think that's the work that we all have to be dedicated to engaging in. So, mm. yeah, I've kind of floated all over the place you from that what, question. Love, you've brought up so many, so many important points. Like, I feel you with the social media thing. I find yeah. myself, I can not easily post, but if there's stuff that directly affects the black community yep. or the Muslim community, yep. I social media is a last thing that I go mm. to. I feel, mm. yeah, like it's just not a healing yeah. place. yeah. Um, it is. It can be a catalyst, like if yep. something that yep. people, someone sees mm-hmm. on social media, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, this right. is an invitation right. to do the hard yeah. work. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Um, and I also love how you brought up the connectedness of things. Mm. I think that's really, really mm. important to talk about because yeah. there's honestly so much that happened last year, and then yeah. this year, free Palestine. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't see the same kind of energy for Free Palestine that yep. there was for Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter. But mm-hmm. if you truly understood and did the work for the Black Lives Matter movement, yeah. then you would also have exactly. the same energy for Free Palestine. Yeah, yeah. Nothing exactly. is in isolation. Yeah, no. Very no. connected. And when you break it down, the roots are, are the same. Like, let's get to the root of white supremacy. Let's get to that. Because that impacts, that is the, the foundation of so much of what's happening in our world. But if we don't see that, then we're going to say, oh, that's the Black Lives Matter movement, and that's the Free Palestine movement, and that's the Free West Papua movement, and they're all separate. But what actually unifies them are these core problems and these structures that we have to, we have to tackle. So it's, it's about, yeah, finding the connections and then re- making them obvious for people. Because people some, sometimes we can't see them. I struggle to see them sometimes, you know, so it's, it's about doing that kind of work. And sometimes social media can be really productive in helping to do that work. Um, so I do recognize it as a tool and I've used it as a tool and, and RIMPAC got a lot, um, you know, a lot of people were talking about RIMPAC, especially here in Aotearoa last year, I think because of social media. But yeah, it can also be quite dangerous, especially for activists when you engage in activism on social media and then are expected to always say something. Um, yeah, because then you start saying something and you might not be prepared to say it. And then are you taking away from the movement? I often tell people the thing that I always ask myself is I, I say, is it about you? Are you posting this because you're, you feel obligated to? Mm-hmm. And if so, it's, bec- it's, it's about you now. And as soon as, as soon as your actions are about you and not about the kaupapa and the movement, then, then your focus is wrong. So don't post it. Don't post it until you feel that you're actually speaking for the, you know, or, or not speaking for, but that you're actually adding to the movement. Because when ego gets in the way, it's really hard. Yeah. It's hard to recognize when ego gets in the way if you're not yeah. even aware of it. So that's yeah. a very good question just to have tucked away yeah. before yeah. you post anything. And I'm just mindful of time. Oh, okay. I want to pick up one, I want to pick up a point that you kind of brought up, yeah. which was when you were talking about your activism and mm-hmm. being an indigenous person mm-hmm. and how your identity is kind of politicized in a yeah. sense because like activism is like you your reality is those struggles mm-hmm. so of course you're going to fight mm-hmm. those struggles mm-hmm. but for people who 
aren't um, from a marginalized community mm -hmm. or don't identify mm -hmm. as indigenous um, and are struggling to kind of mm -hmm. figure out what their responsibility is or what that looks like yeah. or how to even begin that journey. What is mm -hmm. your advice? I think um, working on yourself and working with your own communities is key. I feel like white people, for example, have a lot of work to do. And they have a lot of educating to do within their own communities um, and with their own people and with their own um, families to, to recognize their privileges in society, to recognize what they've gained from those privileges, um, and to then see how they can be of most help to marginalized communities. Um, yeah, so, you know, I think some of us, like my friend Tinangata has a book called Kiamau, and at the beginning she just says, you know, to be indigenous is to be born into a political reality. Mm -hmm. So for some of us, maybe it's our indigenous identity, maybe it's the color of our skin, maybe it's our, you know, whatever. We're just, we don't really have a choice. You're born into a world where you're already seen as less than. Um, so you're politicized from birth, whether you choose to act upon that identity or not. Others, however, are born and they're the norm. They're the standard. So they don't have to experience that. You have that same sense of struggle. Um, they've never experienced being marginalized. So I don't think they've ever had to really do the work to explore their own positionality because they've always been positioned at the center. Um, but I think right now in today's world, there is too much going on in the world for people who have been centralized to not explore the rest to not explore the margins, to not recognize their privilege. Um, there's too much being written, there's too much being said, there's too much in social media, there's too much in popular media about white privilege, white fragility, etc. So I feel like people who have that privilege and have always been centralized then need to do the work to explore whiteness and to explore what it means for them and explore what it means for us so that they can help us in creating a better world. Don't just sit in your privilege, do the mahi. You know, and I think we have a lot of examples of people in Aotearoa who are doing that work. Um, just, I think it was two weeks ago, um, I was on a Zoom call. Oh, it was because we went into level two lockdown. So I was on a Zoom call um, with Catherine Delahunty and um, Maide, I always forget her last name, Ledbetter, Ledbetter who wrote that book right there, See No Evil, on West Papua. And, um, and we were talking with the you know, foreign minister, Nanaya Mahuta, about West Papua. And I looked at these two women, and I just thought, these are two examples of women who are doing the mahi. Not for likes, again, not for social media glory. They're just doing the mahi. And Catherine Delahunty is always a good example of me for somebody who recognizes her place as a white woman, also recognizes the disadvantages that come with being a woman, you know, but, but recognizes her, her role. And is so much, you know, is so involved in educating people about Tetiriti, about obligations to Tetiriti, who's doing behind the scene work, behind the scenes work for West Papua. And, you know, just, she's involved in so much. Um, and I just always think, wow, that, that's a model of, not everybody needs to be a Catherine Delahunty, of course. <laughs> Um, but just of somebody who recognizes her place and, and, and uses it to, yeah, advocate and, and champion better worlds and futures that include all of us. 
Thank you for giving me the names of people I need to contact to have on the show now. Yeah. Oh, Catherine's <laughs> amazing. I love her. Yeah. I think I we yeah, would love to explore mm. that more because mm-hmm. that's something that I come across all the time mm-hmm. um, when people are talking about allyship. Yeah. Um, and one last question. Yes. Because I really want to talk about your book. Oh, yeah. Because yes, <laughs> I know people will be listening. They're like, I want more from this person because you're just so epic. Oh. Um, yeah. Tell me more about your book and where it came from, the place where it came from, yeah. why you wanted to write it. So it's it's called Everything Ancient Was Once New, Indigenous Persistence from Hawaii to Kahiki. Um, and it initially, it came from my PhD research um, and my PhD thesis, which I wrote here um, when I was studying for my PhD in Pacific Studies. And my PhD looked at Kahiki, and Kahiki is a Hawaiian concept, and it's it's the concept of a homeland, an ancestral homeland, it's kind of like Hawaii in that it doesn't have a specific place on a map. It's just sort of this knowing that we come from the Pacific. It's I often explain it as um, an ancestral memory of connection, that we know we migrated from other places in the Pacific, and so Kahiki was the place we migrated from. It could be Tahiti, as some people have guessed or as some people have suggested, but it, it could also be any other place in the Pacific. Anyway, I studied that, and I studied the way kahiki was understood and treated and kind of used in different points of history. And then I submitted my PhD thesis as a manuscript um, to UH Press, the University of Hawaii Press, um, and they accepted it. And then, and why I'm sharing all of this is because in 2019, when I was supposed to be doing some kind of light revisions on the book, um, I made the somewhat crazy decision to basically rewrite it. Um, I know. Bold move. I know, I know. And so, and the reason I did that is because I had sat on the revisions for a while. I love to write, like, that's my thing. It's a struggle, of course. Writing is, is difficult, but I love it. Um, and I, and for some reason, I just couldn't revise that, that thesis. I, I, I struggled. It felt so old to me, even though I, you know, it only, it only been a few years since I actually wrote it. Um, And then I went home. I was here teaching, and I went home in 2019 to be with my people at the base of our mountain, Mauna Kea. Um, We're in an ongoing effort to protect that mountain from desecration. There's a very controversial uh, telescope project that's been planned for the summit, a 30-meter telescope. And Mauna Kea is not only our ancestor, it's one of our most sacred places. So I flew home just to be at the mountain. Um, And it was there that I realized I needed to rewrite the book. Um, and why I felt I needed to rewrite the book is, or rewrite it um, is because I felt like I needed to bring kahiki, I needed to bring the concepts and the theories from the thesis into our current movements. And I hadn't done that work in the thesis. So I came back. Um, I talked with one of my editors and I just said, hey, how much am I allowed to change? And she was very nervous, but she trusted me. I threw entire chapters out. I added brand new chapters in. I just changed a lot. So there, there are pieces in the book that come from my thesis, but a lot of it was it was written in that year. Um, and so the title, and maybe I'll kind of end with the title, but the title, Everything Ancient, Everything Ancient Was Once New, seems like a really obvious statement, right? That like everything that's old was once brand new. Every person that is now old was once a baby. Um, but and how this ties back to conversations we've had about being indigenous is I realized in 2019 that while everything ancient was once brand new, not everything and not everyone is given the opportunity to grow old. 
And that is an unfortunate reality for indigenous people, people of color, people in marginalized communities who are not always given the same rights to evolve and to change um, and to create and to be free. Um, and so in 2019, on the top of our, on the summit of our Mauna, our mountain, two of our altars um, were dismantled and destroyed. And then a little further down the mountain at a slightly lower elevation, um, a hale or a thatched house um, was destroyed by law officials, state, you know, government officials. And the justification, their justification for dismantling them and desecrating them were that they weren't traditional, they weren't customary because they were not old. They were built by contemporary protectors of the mountain. Um, they were only a few years old. So, you know, there are other altars on the mountain, but they were like, those are okay because they're, you know, a few hundred years old. But these, no, they're new, so we'll take them down. Um, and so when I woke up to news of that, I was living here. I was here. Um, it was really heavy. It was a heavy morning for me, and I sat with that. And that statement, um, everything ancient was once new, just sort of sat on my chest that whole day. And then I remember near the end of that day, I said, okay, whenever I feel very, very heavy like that, I know I need to write something. Mm. So I sat down and I, I wrote a poem um, and it came out of me really quickly. And when I started to revise the book and rewrite it, um, I revisited that poem and I thought, oh, that's, that poem's for the book. And so the poem starts the book and, and the book took that name. Um, because ultimately the book is about being, it is about being indigenous. It's about our movements. It's about our realities. Um, but it's also about persistence. It's about that staunch refusal to be anything but indigenous and to, to continue on in the mahi that is required to ensure that our children can experience themselves as indigenous in this world as well. Um, and so it is sort of my insistence that whatever I create today should have the right to be ancient, should I want it to be. Um, that should be the right for every person on the planet, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's, that's the book. Um, and it came out earlier this year in February, end of February. I'm so excited to read. I've got a copy reserved at the library. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much thank for you. sharing yep. like the pain and the heaviness mm. behind your why, mm-hmm. but reframing it with so much hope. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, I, I talk about, um, I talk about hope a lot. And I, I recent, very recently had kind of a text conversation with someone on, or message conversation with someone on Facebook who was saying that, you know, he's, he's never really liked to use words like hope and faith and belief and, and stuff like that. Because, you know, for a lot of us, when you have hope in better futures and you continuously see your hopes smashed, um, it kind of even it might even hurt to use those words and to, to think that you could have hope. Um, but I, I maintain that it's my responsibility to have hope. I have to. Otherwise, if we don't have hope, we've lost everything. Um, and that hope is what sustains my, my movements and my actions in the now. Um, so, yeah, I, I always think I can talk about the heaviness because we have to. But if I don't also balance that with some beauty and some hope, then I'm not doing my job. Um, and I'm not talking about my job in the academy. Mm. I'm talking about my job just as a person, as an indigenous person. So hope's um, essential. And it's not just this lighty, you know, light, flighty um, fantasy thing. It's, it's hope that comes with the mahi. Um, 
yeah, to create better features. Mm, it's what propels you forward, isn't totally. it? Totally. Because there's so much heaviness, but you totally you, you have to go somewhere with that. You have to, right? You have to. Yeah. I hate yeah. how hope is associated with being naive and very yeah. woo-woo. But no, no. It's a strength. Yeah. It really is. It is. It is. Yeah. I think that's how I'm going to end the show. I'm there. Cool. On hope. Yeah. Thank you so I much, Emilani. No, thank you. <laughs> oh, it's been an honor. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.